Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. We are back with the next installment of House Call, a monthly update on the House View equity portfolios with UBS Asset Management. This includes Dividend Ruler, QGARP, Opportunistic Equity Income, Midcap, and Large Cap Core, all very popular offerings with our UBS clients. Joining me today for the conversation, glad to have back Jeremy Zirin. Jeremy is the head of the private client U.S. equity team, as well as Dominique Shager, lead equity investment specialist. Jeremy and Dominique will reflect on equity market performance in 2022, share their performance expectations for 2023, as well as expand on their current thinking when it comes to portfolio positioning. So, Dom, I know you will be leading today's conversation with Jeremy. With that, welcome back to you both. Dom, I'll pass it over to you. Thanks, Dan, and Happy New Year. 2022 was a challenging year, and Jeremy, I'm not just talking about the Mets collapsing in the second half of the season, uh, but a challenging year for investors. <laughs> um, halfway through the year, we saw the U.S. stocks enter a bear market, and the S&P 500 closed the year down 18%. Um, Jeremy, could you start us by a recap of um, giving us a recap of 2022? And can you highlight some of the drivers that led to the underperformance of U.S. equities? What surprised you the most? Sure. And, yeah, it certainly was a challenging year, despite the Mets collapse towards the end of the year. I've turned the page and now focusing much more optimistically on uh, the Buffalo Bills and their playoff prospects as we head into wildcard weekend. Uh, turning to markets, right, thinking about 2022, yes, it was a challenging year. I think it's important to, to, to put the year into context. Right. I mean, the S&P 500 was down 18.1% on the total return basis last year, but it was up 52% in the two-year period that ended 2021. Right? In 2020 and in 2021, despite the fact that we were uh, experiencing a, a global pandemic, the equity market had a, a 52% cumulative return. And frankly, I think that left the market vulnerable to any type of, you know, exogenous shock, uh, given the fact that we had such a sharp run-up in the two years prior to last year, and that combined with the fact that the, the run-up that we saw in markets in 20 and 2021 left the S&P 500 trading at 21 times earnings, which is a, a high multiple relative to history. The long-term average multiple uh, for the S&P 500 is about 16 times. And so at the beginning of last year, uh, you know, the expectation was that inflation was high, running around 6%, but was viewed to be uh, high because of some pandemic distortions. You know, mostly it was in goods inflation uh, because people were purchasing goods during the pandemic because they had money but were, weren't able to travel and couldn't spend on traditional services. And so most people and economists and strategists expected you know, transitory inflation, as the Fed put it, and inflation to start to fall. And unfortunately, the, the shock, an exogenous shock that came to the markets uh, was the war in Ukraine. And that led to in, uh, spike in energy costs, uh, and we saw inflation, instead of moderating from 6%, which is where it stood at the end of uh, 2021, rising throughout the first half of the year uh, towards 9%. And it wasn't only, you know, the war in Ukraine putting pressure on food and energy costs. 
It was also the fact that, you know, the, the pandemic, while it was, uh, you know, improving, uh, we saw improving COVID trends in developed markets in Asia, specifically China, uh, zero COVID policy led, uh, despite zero COVID policy, we, we had, you know, rolling lockdowns in, in China, um, that limited, uh, supply chain activity and that also put pressure on, you know, upward pressure on inflation. And so, you know, as a result, you know, inflation didn't normalize back to the two to three percent level that the Fed would have been comfortable with. It surged to nine percent by the summer and, you know, only started to moderate a little bit towards the back end of the year. The result of that um, financial markets uh, was fairly stark. Uh, you know, we saw bond yields, you know, shoot higher. Uh, keep in mind, at the beginning of last year, expectations was that the Fed was going to raise rates you know, three times, 25 basis points apiece, and leave the fund rate, uh, the federal funds rate, uh, at the end of last year at 75 basis points. That's what markets were pricing in uh, at the beginning of last year. Uh, what happened in reality instead was because inflation was so high, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates over 400 basis points last year. Uh, and that's the fastest calendar year hiking cycle that we've seen since 1980. And that led, you know, for stocks, that led to a significant repricing, you know, particularly in growth stocks, uh, which were the most expensive part of the market and had benefited the most from low interest rates. But overall, you know, it led to uh, the bear market that we saw with the market's down as much as 25% by the middle of the year before recovering by the year end to be down, you know, down 18%. Thanks, Jeremy. So then other than the Bills claiming their first Super Bowl win, can you maybe give us your outlook for 2023? Knock on wood. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit less optimistic on the outlook for the markets, unfortunately, uh, despite the fact that, you know, we had a weak year last year. And it is rare for markets to be down two years in a row. And I doubt that we will see, you know, markets uh, down this year nearly as much as they were in 2022. But I think especially in the, the first half of the year, we could be in for a bit of a bumpy ride. Now, at the end of the day, you know, the equity markets are driven by growth and inflation. And so, you know, healthy growth and low inflation is the optimal environment for equities, often called Goldilocks, as you get, you know, companies able to generate strong earnings and, you know, interest rates fairly low because of low inflation that can lead to higher valuations uh, apply to those earnings. You know, right now, you know, we don't have Goldilocks. If anything, we have something closer to the opposite of Goldilocks, which is stagflation. And it seems that growth is likely to decelerate this year. I mean, certainly corporate profit growth appears set to decelerate. And that's, you know, from the impact of the very sharp rise in interest rates that we saw. And the Fed isn't done, right? The Fed, we know, is very likely to continue to increase interest rates while despite the fact that they are, you know, decelerating the pace of interest rate hikes, it does seem exceedingly likely that we'll see another uh, 25 basis point rate hike this month and then like another, likely another 25 basis points um, in March. And so while inflation is decelerating, which is good news, it's decelerating from very, very high levels and interest rates, you know, are, are likely to stay 
elevated for some time until the Fed is convinced that inflation can fall close to its 2% target. You know, for context, you know, even with the deceleration that we've seen in, in, in inflation measures over the past couple of months, and just this week we got a reading on the consumer price index, uh, the CPI is still at a 6.5% headline rate, a 5.7% core inflation rate, uh, and that's still significantly above, you know, the Fed's 2% target. So putting it, you know, all together, what I like to do is say, okay, you know, is it a good environment for equities in terms of growth and inflation? Not really. Growth, you know, we have soft, soft growth and, you know, we can debate whether we're going to have a hard or soft landing as growth decelerates, but it should be a, a fairly weak below average growth environment over the course of, of 2023. And what I also think is even more important is to, you know, try to assess what is currently being priced into the markets. And so, well, I think the backdrop for equities doesn't look terribly constructive. What I worry even more about is that I think that stocks are closer to pricing in uh, a soft landing rather than uh, an economic hard landing or, or a recession. And, you know, the reason I say that is when I think about, you know, what would be a reasonable level of the S&P under those two scenarios, you know, hard or soft landing. I, I think that, you know, if in a soft landing, maybe valuations, which are currently at about 17 times for the S&P, uh, drift a bit higher up to, you know, 18 times and earnings estimates for this year, which are currently at about $230 for the S&P, you know, they don't end up falling and they end up being maintained at those levels or even up a little bit. But that would still only put you at around, you know, below 4,000 on the S&P. And, you know, with the market trading close to 4,000 today, that only leads, you know, mid-single digit to high-single digit upside for equities in a soft landing scenario. In a hard landing scenario, you know, earnings likely would fall 15 to 20%. Valuations uh, probably would move revert back to closer to their long-term averages. And so in a in a hard landing scenario, I think the S&P 500 likely trades to the low to mid 3000s and from current levels, that would imply, you know, you know 15% downside or so. And so just doing a, a risk reward analysis of, you know, what's priced in today, I would say, you know, between a, a soft landing 5 to 10% up, hard landing closer to 15% down, and in my view, at least, more, a greater probability of uh, uh, a hard landing, meaning, uh, you know, at least a mild recession uh, for the U.S. economy by the middle of this year is a more likely scenario uh, than than uh, the Fed being able to orchestrate uh, a soft landing in 2023. So along the lines of what we just discussed, what keeps you up at night? Well, as a father of four teenage daughters, I could answer that in a lot of different ways. Um, but related to markets, I would frame the question, what are, what are the upside and downside risks, right? I, I think that when people think about risks to market, you know, the word risk uh, invokes panic and concern, right? So I will talk about what are sort of the downside risks, what really keeps me up at night in terms of what, what could lead to an even worse outcome than my overall base case. But I also want to talk about some positive, you know, upside potential surprises as well. I think the, the biggest downside risk for the markets here would be a policy mistake by the Fed. 
that if, you know, the Fed remained laser focused on fighting inflation and had to have a high level of conviction that inflation would fall back to their 2% target for inflation, irrespective of a decelerating growth environment, I, I think that could lead to an even uh, weaker and deeper economic recession than, uh, you know, than, than what is necessarily warranted. Um, and that, you know, I, I worry that, you know, the inflexibility of the Fed in terms of fighting inflation and given a, a lot of Fed speak about the, the asymmetric risks of getting inflation back to their target, uh, has me concerned that we could see, you know, a policy mistake, meaning that the Fed stays too tight, keeps rates too high for too long, which has historically been one of the, the biggest, you know, the most common drivers of economic downturns in U.S. economic history. I would say another downside risk would just be similar to what we saw last year, not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, an escalation of the military conflict in the, in, the, in the Ukraine, but just higher energy prices or energy prices spiking higher once again, you know, either from, you know, a geopolitical flare-up or from simply, you know, energy fundamentals, you know, demand outstripping supply and markets getting worried about, you know, the underinvestment in traditional energy sources that has taken place over the past few years in the context of a global economy where even though it's decelerating, you could have parts of the world, uh, specifically China, uh, that is reopening and, and placing further demand uh, on, on, energy, uh, on energy sources. In terms of upside risk, I would say, you know, let's stick to the topic of inflation because I do think a lot hinges uh, on its path. And it, it's certainly plausible that inflation will continue to decelerate back to or close to the Fed's 2% target over the course of the next several months or quarters. And then the Fed can start to pivot and, you know, rebalance its priorities between stable growth and controlling inflation. And so while I, I get a, a little bit worried, as I mentioned before, that that, you know, more optimistic scenario is increasingly being priced into markets, uh, it certainly is one that could manifest over the next several months and quarters and lead to, you know, equity markets having, uh, you know, some, some upside from here. And then I think the other, you know, positive wild card, and I just alluded to it, is China. Well, well, China, you know, could be, it could be a negative to energy prices. You know, if China can deliver strong economic growth, uh, as it reopens and relaxes its zero COVID policies and mobility trends improve and you get more normalizing activity in China, you know, that could you know, drive strong economic growth in emerging economies and buffer the impact of the decelerating growth in most developing, developed markets and developed economies uh, that are resulting from, you know, the lag impact of higher interest rates. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, so I'm going to switch gears for a minute. One of the questions that I get most often from clients is how should they be positioned entering 2023? Given the style rotation from growth to value that we witnessed last year, is this the right time to switch back to growth? I'm of the view that value is still likely to outperform growth going forward, you know, despite the fact that value outperformed, you know, last year by over 20 percentage points. You know, again, I think, you know, context is important here as well. You know, in the first two years of the pandemic in 20 and 21, growth outperformed value by 48 percentage points. You know, the Russell 1000 Growth Index was up 77% in 
in those two years versus the 29% gain in the Russell 1000 value index. And at the beginning of last year, growth stocks traded at nearly a hundred percent valuation premium, or essentially double the PE of value stocks. With interest rates rising so sharply last year, that PE premium shrunk to 50 percent, is where it stands today. But the long-term average premium valuation for growth stocks over value is, is closer to 35 to 40 percent. And so, growth stocks don't necessarily look cheap yet. And usually, when you have a a regime shift between growth and value. It doesn't reverse until you know the underperforming uh, group looks you know inexpensive relative to history. And then you know further, I still think we're in the early innings of technology earnings estimates being revised lower, which is another reason to be cautious on growth stocks. You know, last year growth stocks underperformed because of the spike in interest rates. I mean, the positive case for growth stocks today is that interest rates are unlikely to head meaningfully higher. We're unlikely to see another growth, you know, interest rate shock uh, with much higher interest rates after they've already normalized to, to higher levels. Uh, but, you know, valuations is only one side of, you know, what drives returns. The other, the other is earnings. And, you know, the growth, you know, the growth uh, seg- segment of the equity market Broadly, you know, still, uh, you know, benefited, uh, from, you know, the pandemic where you had a lot of, you know, sales that was pulled forward as everything was, you know, digitized, right? We worked from home. We entertained ourselves from home, uh, through digital sources. And so the payback for that is likely going, you know, as, as consumption has shifted more from, you know, goods to services, as, as mobility trends have increased, as the impact of the pandemic has, has been reduced uh, in, in most regions of the world, uh, I think it's going to lead to, you know, one, difficult comparisons for technology sector and this sector stock uh, earnings, um, but also, you know, some genuine weakness uh, as that demand was pulled forward. And so my bottom line is that, you know, I doubt we see another huge outperformance year for value like we did last year. But my base case is that value will continue to outperform growth in 2023. As always, Jeremy, thank you for your insights. Dan, that's a wrap from us. Thank you for having us on the show. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.